Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast hello hello this is nick smith your host of the part-time pilot audio ground school podcast welcome in thank you for listening real quick before we get started with anything if you have not subscribed please do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast it really helps us out with our numbers get seen more get out there and help more student pilots and if you have the time you can give us leave us a review that would be awesome so thank you guys for listening in today's episode we don't have many announcements we you know we we finished up our $1,000 scholarship. If you missed out on that scholarship, we do four of them a year. So we give out a $1,000 scholarship. We run her up, gets like free ground school and we do four of them a year. So there's going to be another one here in two to three months. So if you missed out, no worries. Just uh, go to parttimepilot.com, sign up with us. Once you're signed up, you'll have access to the application and all that stuff. So, okay. So that's really the only thing I want to talk about. Let's get right into it because we do have a jam packed day today. So if you're following along in the online ground school, and if you're not, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you do. I think the best way to consume all this material is to really just get it from many different angles as possible. So that's why I take all this mumbo jumbo that I'm talking about now and I just take the lessons and I put these audio clips inside our lessons. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can get these audio lessons and audio clips right in your lessons without any of this mumbo jumbo. And then you have the visual aids, the videos and the quizzes. So if you're not following along, I highly recommend you do. If you are, this is in step one course on online ground school private pilot lessons we're in section eight now limitations and more regulations so i kind again i kind of space those out so that we don't bore you to the death plus some of these you know some background information that we had to learn before helps out with understanding some of these so in this one we're actually going to finish section eight today because there's some there's a run of some shorter lessons so i want to try and get them all crammed in it might be a little bit longer one not sure depends on how long it takes but we're going to start off with lesson six on atc clearance and compliance then we're going to go to lesson seven on temporary flight restrictions or TFRs. Then we'll go lesson eight fuel requirements, lesson nine hemispherical rule, and finally lesson 10 aircraft maintenance. All right. So without further ado, because we've got a lot to listen to, let's get started with lesson six on ATC clearance and compliance. Now, the rules of speed, minimum altitudes, seatbelts, and right-of-ways that we talked about in the last episode are to be applied while flying at all times no matter where you are. This includes flight in controlled and uncontrolled airspaces. However, once in a controlled airspace, the pilot must follow an additional set of rules depending on the airspace. Chief among these rules is to follow the directions of the Governing Air Traffic Control or ATC Center for that airspace. 
In controlled airspaces, flight through the airspace, including takeoff and landing, can only occur legally with ATC clearance. An ATC clearance provides authorization to proceed under specific or specified traffic conditions in controlled airspace. Once an ATC clearance is obtained, no pilot may deviate from the clearance unless an amended clearance is given and there is an emergency or it is a result of a traffic collision avoidance system on board the aircraft. So I'm gonna repeat that because this is sort of the key takeaway from this entire lesson and something that you might see on the FAA written exam. Once an ATC clearance is obtained, no pilot may deviate from the clearance unless an amended clearance is given from that ATC. So this would be something like, you know, ATC clears you for takeoff. And then five seconds later, they say, I'm going to amend my last clearance. We want you to hold short of runway 27. We have incoming traffic that needs to get down, whatever, right? They might amend their clearance. And then in that case, you're not going to, you're only, you would deviate from their previous clearance, right? So uh, that's pretty straightforward, but they kind of had to put that language in the FAR. So no pilot may deviate from the clearance unless it's amended or there is an emergency or it is a result of a traffic collision avoidance system on board the aircraft. So we talked about these like TCAS systems, traffic collision avoidance system. I mentioned it last time. I wasn't sure of the acronym, but I, I think I got it right. And so if TCAS, you know, takes over and causes you to make a turn the ATC did not clear you from, but that's because the system was saving you from an accident, that is okay. You're probably going to have to you know, submit a report, which we'll get to in a sec, or if there is an emergency. And the emergency is the one that sort of is the one term. So you have, unless there's an amended clearance by ATC, so unless they tell you otherwise, basically, unless TCAS makes you do something, or unless there's an emergency, now that comes into your judgment, right? So the one that has some wiggle room there, what do you determine is an emergency and that is why it goes the far goes on to say if a pilot deviates from an atc clearance the pilot must notify atc as soon as possible and shall submit a report to the atc manager within 48 hours of the incident if requested so if you think you're in an emergency and you deviate from ATC clearance. Let's say they have you coming into land and you, or let's say they have you coming in for taking off, right? And there's a deer runs on the runway or something. And you, so you abort your takeoff because you declared that deer running across the runway was an emergency. Let's say it's a pack of deer or something, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And so you say that's an emergency. I'm not taking off and running into all those deer. And so if the ATC saw the deer, then they would probably be like, look, we totally get it. Good job. Uh, just get back in line and we'll have you take off. We'll get those deer out of here. And, and they probably won't request that you write a report. Now, if they weren't to see the deer and they were just like, why is this guy or gal? Why are they not taking off? Why? What are they doing? Why are they not listening to us? We got planes coming in. What the heck? So they're going to ask you for a report, right? And so in the air, that's a lot more common. Obviously the deer example, they would probably see the deer on their runway from the tower, but there might be something else, right? There might be traffic they don't see. There might be a balloon, kite, some drone, someone from the ground might be shooting lasers in your face. Something that makes it really difficult and unsafe for you to do whatever ATC wants, you might declare that as an emergency. And if they don't know why you're deviating from what they want you to do, now you, you want to always try to stay with under ATC and communicate with them. But if you deem it's an actual emergency and if you continue on that path, it could actually damage you or the aircraft or something, then that's the decision you got to make. And then they're probably going to ask you for a report that you have to file with the ATC manager within 48 hours. And then also part of that was you must notify ATC as soon as possible in the deer situation the deer runs out on the runway you stop and then if it was me i would just get on the radio and i say 
hey, not sure if you see this, but there's deer on the runway, so I'm, I'm aborting my takeoff. I'm going to get off here at taxiway exit, you know, Delta four or whatever it is. And then I'll get a new clearance from you guys or something like that. Right. And so you got to just notify them right away. Let's say there was a bunch of balloons released and you're in the pattern and you got to fly around all these balloons because some idiot released a bunch of balloons on the ground and they're flying right in your path and you don't want to get caught in your propeller, whatever. So you got to fly around these balloons, just call up ATC as soon as possible and just say, Hey, I'm deviating from the air traffic pattern. I don't see any traffic. So I think I'm safe if I just go around, but there's some balloons floating up in my path. You know, just let them know right away, be clear with them. And uh, if they didn't see what they do, or they think you're kind of taking advantage of this uh, ability to declare an emergency, then they might ask you to submit a report. That's it. That is the lesson on ATC clearance and compliance that I wanted to say. Basically, if you're in, you know, airspace with a control tower, then you have to you have to get clearance for that control tower for to enter, to take off, to land, to enter the traffic pattern, all that stuff. You got to be talking with them outside of, you know, a controlled airspace airport without a control tower. You know, you're on your own. You're still on the radio talking to common traffic, but you don't have that ATC clearance and compliance requirement when you're not flying at a controlled air airport. Okay, so let's continue on with temporary flight restrictions and TFRs. This is lesson number seven of the online ground school. Airspaces that are controlled or uncontrolled, as well as restricted areas and military exercise areas can be determined from a terminal area or sectional chart of the local area. However, one flight restriction that is not depicted on these charts are temporary flight restrictions or TFRs. So for example, a military, you know, a restricted area will be on a chart and it'll be clear with those magenta dash lines, right? Where that restricted area is and when you have to avoid it because that's a permanent sort of area. It might change over years and then they'll update the maps, but it's permanent. Now these temporary flight restrictions are things that are like for half a day, a day, maybe a weekend or something. So these TFRs are not gonna be put on these sectional charts because they would have to print a sectional chart like every other day or every other hour. And that's just not something they're gonna do. TFRs are not shown on charts because well, they're temporary, right? So a pilot must look for these restrictions in their intended path of flight before taking off. So if you're gonna take, you know, a little cross country trip, you gotta look on your planned route and anywhere sort of near your planned route and alternates if there are any TFRs and you have to be aware of them. Things like ForeFlight charting softwares and GPS systems will plot these out for you and that's why that's really nice to have that type of software. If not, you know, you're going to have your paper chart. You're going to have to get a an updated report for the TFRs. You're going to have to look up the TFRs on, on the NOTAMs right? So you'll have to look up the NOTAMs, get the TFRs, and then find out where they are, maybe circle that area on your chart and make sure you're avoiding that area at all times because it's a temporary flight restriction. You cannot fly within a TFR. So TFRs are issued by the FAA and can be found on the FAA website at tfr.faa.gov. Examples of a TFR are areas above wildfires, areas around Air Force One, or other high-level national security personnel, areas above theme parks or sporting events, etc. So if it's May 22nd when this episode is being released. So, you know, you got baseball in full effect, Major League Baseball. So go check out your local team, whatever your team is. So the, mine is San Diego Padres, or I'm actually a fan of the Seattle Mariners. Go Mariners. Uh, but so whatever your team is, go and look at their stadium during one of their games chances are because there's so many people packed in there there's going to be a tfr around that stadium they don't want anyone flying over that stadium during the game so they just block out flights over that area 
So you can't fly into a TFR. You have to fly around them. You have to know where they are. So NOTAMs, TFR.FA.gov, things like ForeFlight and GPS systems will also be able to plot them. And then you can also get them when you get a weather report, you call in to get a weather report, a full weather report. You can ask about TFRs on your route as well. You can also ask FSS stations while in flight if there are any TFRs in your area. All right, so that was it on TFRs. Let's move on. I told you these were quick and we're gonna move on right through this stuff to lesson eight on fuel requirements. So the FAA actually has some fuel requirements. You wouldn't think that the FAA needs to tell pilots how much fuel they need to have, but they do. They they don't want us running out of fuel. And you know the, the saying, like if, if you see a sign, that means because someone once did that. So as stupid as the sign may seem, at some point, somewhere, at some time, some person did that stupid thing, <laughs> right? So you can maybe put that under this category, but sometimes we forget these things. And so the FAA is going to give us that buffer to make sure that we don't run out of fuel. The FAA requirement for fuel during day VFR flight is fuel enough to reach your first planned destination plus an additional amount of fuel for 30 minutes of cruise flight. Okay, so what does this mean? So it means for day VFR flights, you need to have, so you're flying during the daylight hours and your VFR, enough fuel to reach your first planned destination, so wherever you're going to land first, plus an additional amount of fuel for 30 minutes in cruise flight. The reason why they say cruise flight is because they give you a time and to calculate how much fuel you're gonna use in a time, that's a fuel consumption rate and that changes whether you're in descent or a climb or in cruise so they tell you it's a cruise so whatever your cruise uh, fuel consumption rate is for your aircraft 30 minutes of that so for example let's say cruise fuel consumption rate for your aircraft is 10 gallons per hour so 30 minutes you need enough fuel for 30 minutes well 30 minutes at 10 gallons per hour would be five gallons of fuel so you need enough fuel to reach your destination plus five more gallons to be considered legal per the faa under fuel requirements now the requirement for flying vfr at night so that was daylight hours now at night it's the same thing but you have to have 45 minutes of cruise flight time so back in that example you get to your destination then you have to have if again it's cruise flight time so at 10 gallons per hour if that is the fuel consumption rate for your aircraft in cruise that's the example we're using you need 45 minutes of that so that is going to be three four three quarters of that so that's gonna be 7.5 gallons so you need fuel enough to get to your first destination plus seven and a half gallons at night so it's 45 minutes extra fuel at night, 30 minutes extra fuel during the day. Now, when we say the word night, there are several different definitions of night used by the FAA, depending on what regulation we are talking about. That's one of, one of the most annoying sort of tidbits about the FARs. There's, they use the term night in a lot of different situations, and the definition of night changes in three different of those situations. We'll talk a little bit about this later, but if we are talking about logging flight time at night, for example, in order to be current to fly passengers at night, then the definition changes to one hour after sunset to one hour before sunrise. And if we we're talking about the requirement for aircraft equipment at night, like flaps, remember that the required equipment at night the mnemonic device with flaps, then the definition changes to sunset to sunrise. But for fuel requirements, the definition of night is the end of evening civil twilight to the beginning of morning civil twilight. And twilight is basically the very, very, so in the morning, right? It's the very start of light. 
Like that's the definition of twilight, right? The very, very first time you see that light and they actually document this, you can actually look up, you know, like what is the exact minute of civil twilight on this day? You can look that up for both morning and then they have a nighttime. That's when basically right when the light ends, all the light ends and it's considered nighttime. So for fuel requirements, when we say night, when you need that 45 minutes of extra fuel, that night means the end of evening civil twilight to the beginning of morning civil twilight. Now, if we are talking about things like logging flight time or talking about required equipment, those definitions changes, which we mentioned before, and we'll mention again a little bit later. So to sum it all up, FAA requires 30 minutes worth of reserves during day and 45 minutes worth of reserves at night. So that is lesson eight. We're moving right along to now lesson nine of section eight. And this one's called the hemispherical rule. You may have heard of it before if you've started your flight training. So what exactly is the hemispherical rule? Well, when traveling cross country from airport to airport, the FAA wants to make sure the airways are designed to avoid collisions. This makes control centers and pilots jobs much, much easier. To do this, they have established VFR cruising altitudes for all flights. And they, again, they have this for IFR as well, but we're just going to focus focus on VFR cruising altitudes for all flights above 3000 feet AGL. So if you're below 3000 feet AGL, this does not come into effect at all. So when you're above 3000 feet AGL, when traveling eastbound between the magnetic courses, so again, it's a magnetic course of 000 and 179 degrees. So magnetic course between zero and 179 degrees, an aircraft flying VFR above 3000 feet AGL again, while in cruise flights, so that's sort of the third caveat. We have directions, so eastbound directions in terms of magnetic, and then we have above 3,000 feet AGL, and then we have in cruise flight. That's when these rules apply. So what does in cruise flight mean? Well, that means like not climbing or turning. Obviously, if you're turning, you don't really know which direction you're traveling yet because not until you finish your turn will that be the case. You might be changing directions, turning around. You might be changing from westbound to eastbound in terms of magnetic course. And then when you're climbing or descending or something, that is also not the case because you're, you're changing through these altitudes, right? So there's not going to be a set altitude. This is clearly just talking about cruise altitudes. So we want to be in cruise above 3,000 feet AGL. And then when you're eastbound on magnetic course between 0 and 179, you must fly at an altitude of an odd thousand plus 500 feet. So that means like 3,500 feet because that would be, again, above 3,000 feet AGL. And it's, so it's an odd, so that's the 3,000 plus 500, so 3,500 feet, or it would be 5,500, 7,500, or 9,500, or even you can keep going up, 11,500, whatever. So all of those would work for an eastbound magnetic course between 000 and 179 degrees, again, when in cruise flight. Now, on the flip side of this is when you're westbound between magnetic courses of 180 degrees, 359 degrees. So now we're opposite side. We're westbound in terms of magnetic course. And again, we're above 3000 feet AGL in cruise flight. You're going to fly at even intervals of 1000 plus 500. So that would be 4,500, 6,500, 8,500, 10,500, 12,000. You get the picture. So what this does is when you're traveling westbound, you're traveling at either 4,500, 6,500, or 8,500. When we're traveling eastbound, you're traveling at 3,500, 5,500, or 7,500. And so no matter which one you go, when you're traveling, let's say you're traveling westbound and you really want to be at 5,000 feet, right? You want to be at 5,000 feet AGL, but you're traveling westbound. So you're on cruise flight. So you want to be at, so 
you have to be at, by this rule, this hemispherical rule, you have to be at 4,500. Now let's say there's an aircraft who also wants to be traveling at 5,000 feet AGL, it's traveling eastbound. They would travel at 5,500. They would add 500 to theirs. So now you're at 4,500. The other aircraft's at 5,500. You have this thousand foot of separation. That's what this rule does. It, you know, if you're traveling eastbound or you're traveling westbound, it creates a thousand foot separation when pilots want to fly at the same altitude. And that helps with collision avoidance and traffic and all that stuff. So the best way to explain this is an example, which I kind of just gave, but if an aircraft is flying a course of 100 degrees and wants to fly at or above 4,000 feet AGL, then they're required to fly at an odd interval because you're on a course, magnetic course of 100. So that's between zero and 179. Okay, so that's eastbound. So you want to do an odd interval of 1,000, which would be 5,700, and then add 500 feet to that. So if you want to be 4,000 feet AGL, you know, you might do either 3,500 feet, or if you want to be higher, then you would choose 5,500 feet. I would probably choose 5,500 just to stay clear of the train because probably a reason I wanted to be at 4,000, so I might as well go higher to be safer. And then on the flip side, if you're traveling on a course of 230, again, magnetic course, and you want to fly at 4,000 feet AGL, you would have to be at an even interval of 1,000, you know, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, plus 500 feet. So you might choose 4,500 feet. And again, this rule helps to maintain separation in uncontrolled airspaces. So when ATC is not watching you, not telling you what altitude to fly and all that, this helps with that separation, helps to make sure we're not crashing into each other. Even though there's all that space out there, it does happen. So again, odd thousand plus 500 feet when traveling east, even plus 500 feet when traveling west. This is in cruise flight above 3000 feet AGL. And that is the hemispherical rule. All right, so that wraps up lesson nine, where we have one more lesson in the section. That's lesson 10 on aircraft maintenance. And then we are going to be halfway through the online ground school. Halfway. Wow. That was, so what is this? Episode 42? 42 episodes. There's a lot of stuff you guys got to learn, but man, is it cool when you can look back and say that you know all this stuff. So keep at it. Uh, before we get to this last lesson, because I really do want to finish this up and get to that halfway point after this episode, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back. Lesson 10 on aircraft maintenance. Hi, this is Bree from Part-Time Pilot. There is no better way to wake up in the morning of a flight than with clear skies and a cup of hot, delicious coffee. And there is no better coffee than coffee straight from Nicaragua. And there is no better coffee for pilots than twin engine coffee. That's why I bought a custom pod for my Keurig and Nespresso machines and a coffee grinder just so that I could grind my own fresh Nicaraguan coffee beans from Twin Engine Coffee. It's so much better than those stupid K-cups or K-pods or whatever you call them. But right now you're probably like, why are you telling us about coffee? Well, it's because not only is it aviation-themed coffee straight from Nicaragua, but it's also coming from a great cause. Rather than taking all of the coffee beans out of Nicaragua to package and sell elsewhere, Twin Engine Coffee is headquartered in Nicaragua where they have created jobs for local community and have a mission to help reduce local poverty. So if you're a pilot and you like coffee, head over to twinenginecoffee.com ptp or with the link in the show notes to order fresh whole bean Nicaraguan coffee straight to your home today. Hey pilots, this is Nick again. Did you guys know that Part-Time Pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on Amazon? 
It's a physical book that you can buy on Amazon to help prep for your FAA written exam. So it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, Asa, or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those, but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject, like the cliff notes, like those other books do, and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test, but it also goes much, much further, and that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book. So for each subject, it also has a QR code so that as you're reading it, if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step labeled steps on performance calculation charts. So it's not just cliff note bullet points, it's that plus much, much more, these visual aids, all in 404 pages in the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book, and it is only $37. So you can go check that out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes, so go check it out. Okay, welcome back, and we are one lesson away from being at the halfway point. So what I want you to do is first, I want you to maybe take a day or two off, because this is a lot that we've learned and we've got a lot more to go. So I want you, you've earned it, take a day off, pat yourself on the back as well. It's very important to take these small victories Maybe celebrate a little bit with your significant other, with your friend, with your parents, with your brother, sister, siblings, you know, whoever, or even if it's with yourself, you know? Gosh, I love those days where I celebrate. I, I watch a movie that my wife won't watch with me, like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or something, order a pizza. Oh yeah, those those days are nice. So even if it's by yourself, you know, give yourself some love. Uh, you deserve it. Pat yourself on the back. And the next thing I want you to do is maybe go back and look at the lessons that we've covered. And maybe some of those lessons you might have struggled on, maybe go take that quiz one more time or maybe two more times. Because unfortunately, because there is so much information, it takes a long time to get through it. And some of the stuff with this information is, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. That's the unfortunate part. So you might have struggled with something, finally got it down, and then a month goes by where we get through all this other stuff. We go through all this other stuff, and then you're like, ah, crap, I forget, I totally forget how to do this. And so if you do it now, if you go back at the halfway point, you refresh yourself now, it might, you might be able to find that in the little, crevices of your brain and pull that out rather easily. Where if you wait till till much later, you might not be able to find it again and might have to take more work to dig back up. So go and do it now. Keep it fresh while we go for the long haul. All right, I should shut up and let's finish because we're not there yet. We got one more lesson left and that's on aircraft maintenance. The primary responsibility for maintaining an aircraft 
in airworthiness condition falls on the owner or operator of that aircraft. Now, we mentioned this way back when, so just restating that because it's important for this context. If you own or operate your own aircraft and are a private pilot, that means the responsibility falls on you. You are allowed to conduct some maintenance on your aircraft yourself, according to 14 CFR Part 43.7, and do not require an AI or ANP mechanic, that's inspection authorized or airframe and power plant mechanic, to perform the maintenance. However, you as a private pilot without an official mechanic certificate are only allowed to perform preventative maintenance on the aircraft you own or operate. So if you're like, hey, if I'm a good mechanic, you know, but I don't have these certificates, an AI certificate or an A&P mechanic certificate, but I know how this stuff works. Can I buy my aircraft and can I just maintain it in these good, you know, because I trust myself. I trust my own work. Can I just, you know, can I do the 100 hour, the annual inspections? Can I replace my engine? Can I do all these things? Is that allowed? Because that sounds good. I don't have to pay for a mechanic. I don't have to pay for these inspections, all that jazz. The answer is no. You either have to have those certificates, those mechanic certificates that inspection authorized or airframe and power plant mechanic or you can only limit yourself to the preventative maintenance keyword preventative on your aircraft we'll get into what that is but as a private pilot you are not allowed to perform 100 hour or annual inspections in fact either an inspection authorized mechanic that's the ai or airframe and power plant mechanic a and p must perform and sign off on 100 hour inspections in order for that aircraft to return to service furthermore only an inspection authorized mechanic again that's the ai is allowed to sign off on annual inspections for the aircraft to be returned to service both the 100 hour and annual inspections must have the appropriate notation and signatures in the aircraft maintenance records authorized by that mechanic before it returns to service. That is to make it airworthy and legal. Okay, so unless you have those mechanic certificates, you as a private pilot cannot perform those. The preventative maintenance that may be performed by a private pilot that owns or operates his or her own aircraft is limited to the following items by 14 CFR part 43.7, as long as they do not involve complex assembly operations. So that's kind of a key term right there. So you're allowed to do the following items. They list these in 14 CFR part 43.7, as long as any of these do not involve complex assembly operations. So that's kind of a, a loose term. What does complex assembly operations mean? You'll probably have to really honestly ask a lawyer to determine what that means because it, it can vary. But complex assembly operations, you know, it's assembly is usually when it's multiple parts, right? So if you have to do one of these preventative maintenance things, but it means you have to take off the engine to do it, that's, you know, that's a pretty good idea that that is not going to be kosher with the FAA. Or for example, let's say you have to disassemble the flaps or the ailerons, the control surfaces, get to some light wire in the wing. Obviously, no, because you're disassembling an assembly and then re-putting it back together. So that's an assembly operation and it's complex. So the following list does not need to be memorized. Again, you're not going to be asked about this on the FA written, nor are you going to be likely, probably 99% not going to be asked about these specifically on on your check or oral. But the things you do need to know are, you know, who can perform the 100 hour? We talked about that. That's an AI or an A&P mechanic. Who can perform the annual? That's got to be an AI mechanic. You as a private pilot can only do preventative maintenance. What is preventative maintenance? Well, maybe remember one or two of these as an example and say it's something that does not involve complex assembly of operations. If you remember that, I think you should be good to go on your check right oral. But we're going to go through this list because I think there's some of you out there that might be interested and you might want to own your own aircraft. It's something that 
I think more and more people are looking into with, you know, the costs of flight training and stuff. Owning your own aircraft can be a good way to go with, even though it's a high ticket item in the long run, if you plan to use it a lot, it might be a good way to go. So more and more people are looking into that. So more and more people might be interested in these items. So here are the preventative maintenance a private pilot can perform in case you're ever in this situation. Removal, installation, and repair of landing gear tires. Replacing elastic shock absorber cords or landing gear. Servicing landing gear shock struts by adding oil, air, or both. Servicing landing gear wheel bearings such as cleaning and greasing. Replacing defective safety wiring or cotter keys. Lubrication not requiring disassembly other than removal of non-structural items such as cover plates, cowlings, and fairings. Making simple fabric patches not requiring rib stitching or the removal of structural parts or control surfaces. In the case of balloons, the making of small fabric repairs to envelopes as defined in and in accordance with the balloon manufacturer's instructions. Not requiring load tape repair or replacement. So that's kind of specific to balloons. We might not care about that. Replenishing hydraulic fluid in the hydraulic reservoir. Refinishing decorative coating of fuselage, balloon baskets, wing tail, wings tail group surfaces excluding balance control services, fairings, cowlings, landing gear, cabin, or cockpit interior when removal or disassembly of any primary structure or operating system is not required, applying preservative or protective material to components where no disassembly of any primary structure or operating system is involved, where such coating is not prohibited or is not contrary to good practices, repairing upholstery and decorative furnishings of the cabin, cockpit, or balloon basket interior when the repairing does not require dis assembly of any primary structure or operating system or interfere with an operating system, any operating system, or affect the primary structure of the aircraft. Making small, simple repairs to fairings, non-structural cover plates, cowlings, and small patches and reinforcements, not changing the contour so as to interfere with proper airflow. Replacing side windows where that work does not interfere with the structure or any operating system such as controls, electronic equipment, etc. Replacing safety belts, replacing seats or seat parts with replacement parts approved for the aircraft, not involving disassembly of any primary structure or operating system. Troubleshooting and repairing broken circuits and landing wing wiring circuits. Replacing bulbs, reflectors, and lenses of position and landing lights. Replacing wheels and skis where no weight and balance computation is involved. Replacing any cowling not requiring removal of the propeller or disconnection of flight controls. Replacing or cleaning spark plugs and setting of spark plug gap clearances. Replacing any hose connection except hydraulic connections replacing prefabricated fuel lines, cleaning or replacing fuel and oil strainers or filter elements. Pilots are of course permitted to add oil however. Adding oil is not formally considered preventative maintenance and therefore does not need to be logged. Replacing and servicing batteries. Cleaning of balloon burner plate and main nozzles in accordance with the balloon manufacturer's instructions. Again, don't care about that. Replacement or adjustment of non-structural standard fasteners incidental to operations. The installations of anti-misfueling devices to reduce the diameter of fuel tank filler openings provided the specific device has been made a Part of the aircraft type certificate data by the aircraft manufacturer. The aircraft manufacturer has provided the FAA approved instructions for installation of the specific device and installation does not involve the disassembly of an existing tank filler opening. Removing, checking, and replacing magnetic chip detectors. The inspection and maintenance tasks prescribed and specifically identified as preventative maintenance in a primary category aircraft type certificate or supplemental type certificate holders approved special inspection and preventative maintenance program when accomplished on a primary 
category aircraft, provided they are performed by the holder of at least a private pilot certificate issued under Part 61, who is the registered owner, including co-owners of the affected aircraft, and who holds a certificate of competency for the affected aircraft. One, issued by a school approved under FAR 147.21E of this chapter. Two, issued by the holder of the production certificate for that primary category aircraft that has a special training program approved under FAR 21.24 of this subchapter. Or three, issued by another entity that has a course approved by the administrator. And the inspections and maintenance tasks are performed in accordance with instructions contained by the special inspection and preventative maintenance program approved as part of the aircraft's type design or supplemental type design. Holy smokes. So basically what that says is if there might be additional preventative maintenance things that are listed in a type certificate and you have to meet all those requirements to be able to do those. So you have to you know, be a private pilot and owner of the aircraft and all that stuff. So I'm not going to repeat that, uh, but let's continue on. We got a couple more. Removing and replacing self-contained front instrument panel mounted navigation and communication devices that employ tray mounted connectors that connect the unit when the unit is installed into the instrument panel, excluding automatic flight control systems, transponders, and microwave frequency distance measuring equipment, or DME. The approved unit must be designed to be readily and repeatably removed and replaced, and pertinent instructions must be provided. Prior to the unit's intended use and operation check must be performed in accordance with the applicable sections of part 91 of this chapter and finally updating of a gps database once the preventative maintenance is complete you will need to log the maintenance appropriately in the appropriate logbook for the aircraft the entry must include so if you do any of those things you have to log it in the maintenance log and it must be appropriately logged so it must include a description of the work performed or references to data that are acceptable to the administrator so a description of the work performed or reference to data that are acceptable to the administrator the date of completion and the signature certificate number and kind of certificate held by the person performing the work. This logbook entry and signature returns the aircraft to service. The ultimate responsibility for assuring that maintenance personnel or yourself, if performing preventative maintenance on your own aircraft, make the appropriate entries in the aircraft maintenance records indicating the aircraft has been approved for return to service lies with the owner or operator. Okay, so what that says is the owner or operator is the one that's responsible ensuring that those maintenance records are kept up to date. No matter who does it, whether it's maintenance personnel, you know, AI, A&P, mechanics, or the private pilot who does the preventative maintenance, again, owner-operator, it's their responsibility. So if that's you, the private pilot, it's your responsibility to make sure that's in the maintenance record. And the logbook entry and signature is required to return the aircraft to service anytime this preventative maintenance is done. Okay, so if you do the maintenance, you have to put it in the logbook and sign off on it before that's returned to service or else it's technically illegal. So you don't want to get yourself, if you own your own aircraft, let's say you perform some type of preventative maintenance that ends up causing some sort of failure while you're flying and then you crash. You know, if you were to say, hey, go to that company that made the system that failed, if you didn't sign off on that preventative maintenance, you could be held liable is basically what I'm trying to say. So to make it legal to again fly, because you would be illegal illegally flying if you didn't sign off on the preventative maintenance. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. All right, so that was a lot. That was a lot of stuff. Again, I just want to kind of review, but any pilot with a pilot certificate from Part 61 is allowed to perform preventative maintenance on an aircraft they own or operate. 
This includes private and commercial pilots, but does not include student or recreational pilots. So if you're a student or recreational pilot, you cannot perform preventative maintenance. So you gotta be at least private pilot to do that. And then just to review, again, you don't have to remember, you know, if it were me studying for my check ride and I was studying this, I would say, okay, A&I mechanic has to do the annual inspection, authorized mechanic has to do the annual inspection. AI or A&P mechanic can do the 100 hour. Private pilot that owns their own aircraft can do preventative maintenance as long as it's not complex assembly operations. And some of the stuff, I would grab like three examples. I'd be like uh, repair of tires, replacing safety belts, and updating GPS database. You know, three common sort of things that might happen when you own and maintain an aircraft that would be considered preventative maintenance. You know, that's what I would remember for my checkride oral exam. And I think any examiner that quizzes you past that, that's a little unfair in my opinion. So I don't think that would happen. Okay. That was a lot. I am out of breath. But thank you guys for listening. We did it. We friggin' did it. We have made it. We're at halfway point. So just to let you know, inside the online ground school, and then I reiterate that, hey, this is a good time to take some time off, pat yourself on the back, maybe go review some stuff. And then also I say, what is your goal? At the beginning of the course, I asked our students to set a goal. What is a goal for taking the FA knowledge test at the beginning of the course? And let's reevaluate that goal. I am a huge believer in goals, but I set so many goals when I put time on that. So often I don't meet that time frame. Because shit happens, guys, right? Life happens, and sometimes you don't meet your goal. Does that mean you should feel really bad about that and feel like a failure? No. What you shouldn't do is just forget about it. Say, I failed. That goal's over. I'm never going to do it. You should reevaluate your goals. So that's what I want you guys to do right now here is reevaluate your goal of when you want to be done with this studying and when you want to take your knowledge test, pass your knowledge test, and then continue on to your check ride and all the minimum hours that you need. So let's reevaluate our goal. Let's not get sad if we didn't hit our goal in the halfway point, if we're moving slower than normal. Life, again, life happens. So let's reevaluate our goals. Let's reset that date and let's try it again. And if we miss it again, then we'll reset it again. The important part is we're not giving up. We have the persistence of resetting that goal and reaching out for it. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. Again, if you haven't subscribed, please do that. That helps us out a ton. Until next week, we'll get started on what what do we got coming up? Let's see here. It's section 10 on human factors. So all the things that we humans have limitations to, things like medical, you know, motion sickness, hyperventilation, hypoxia, supplemental auction, all that stuff. We're going to talk about that in section 10 starting next week. So I'll talk to you then. Thanks. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors, and $22,000, and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot 
Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working so most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job we have kids we have family we have school we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training and most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you and so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot well the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting you want to avoid being boring you want to avoid that burnout so how we do that is we present our material in multiple multiple ways and you're actually listening to one of them right now you can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording you can do this while you're running while you're driving in traffic again tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot or you can read through our written lessons you know i like to read so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. 
or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices have that visual cue those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding or you can watch our videos or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.